I'm a 20th century mind grappling with a 22nd century problem. Microbes are the real nanotechnology. Why fight over provinces when there's whole planets waiting for us? So this is a new science that we're going to perhaps open up by going to Mars. Hi, I'm Greg Mastrider, and this is my podcast on rationality, transhumanism, and trends of development in society. Today, here with me is Robert Zubrin, the president of the Mars Society and the author of the legendary book A Case for Mars. Hi, Robert. Thanks for joining in. Hello. Thanks for inviting me. So the first question is uh, concerns the topic that you have been speaking about for decades already. When will we achieve Mars? What's your estimation currently? I know that you've made uh, uh, several estimates that uh, have not been achieved because of some political reasons and other reasons. Uh, what about now in 2020? What do you think is the realistic outcome? I think we'll be on Mars by 2030. Uh, and uh, I have um, much more confidence in this than in the previous um, predictions because those were based on on the one hand, technical reality that we could do it, but it also depended upon political decisions being made, uh, which were not made. And uh, But now what we have is we have a private space program. We've got SpaceX, which is uh, developing the means to get to Mars. And they are committed. They're all in. Elon Musk is all in. And he's not building a ship in Boca Chica. He's building a shipyard. He's turning these things out. And his philosophy is build them, fly them, wreck them, remake them, fly them again until you make it work. And, you know, Musk, of course, uh, makes optimistic predictions. He said he'd reach orbit this year with Starship. I don't think he will. But I think it's certain that he'll reach uh, orbit and be reaching orbit routinely with Starships by 2024. And uh, if that's the case, uh, you know, we're going to have a new president in 2024. And uh, if Starships, which are fully reusable, heavy lift launch vehicles, you know, capability equal to the Saturn V, but one-tenth the cost. If those are routinely flying to orbit by 2024, that's a different reality. And the new president's going to turn to his or her advisors and say, look at this, could we have people on Mars by the end of my second term? And the answer is going to be certainly yes. Will it cost hundreds of billions of dollars? No. Will it cost tens of billions of dollars? Well, maybe 10. Well, then let's do this. And at that point, we'll have the government space program, NASA, meet Musk halfway. Because there's some stuff he needs. He, he's developing the biggest stuff, the transportation system. But there's other stuff that's needed, and some of it would be hard for him to develop. For instance, nuclear power reactors for use on the Martian surface, because they involve the use of highly enriched uranium, which is tightly controlled. NASA can develop that part and certain other surface systems. Uh, and... Uh, by making it feasible, he's going to make it sellable. It will sell. It will fly. So you think it will be a collaboration between NASA and SpaceX or maybe other private companies? Well, certainly other companies uh, will join in once the thing is, is underway. But the two primary partners will be NASA and SpaceX and then uh, other space agencies and other private companies around the world can uh, take a role as well. Uh, do you think it will be an international effort? Uh, will the Russians and the Chinese join in, maybe the Europeans, or will the Americans be solely responsible for that? It will certainly turn out to be an international effort on behalf of the, the Western countries. And 
Uh, it's it's conceivable that Russia would join in. That's up to Russia. Uh, now, China is, is a little different, uh, but I think it could be fully international, um, especially if we adopt a um, bring-your-own-ship attitude. We're going, why don't you come too? And perhaps we can have uh, a bit of an Olympic-style competition uh, for who can win the most honors or the most glory, if you will, for making the most discoveries. We'll be there to help each other. It's something you may not know. I was actually in Leningrad when we landed on the moon. Um, oh. Because, yes, I was. And because uh, as, as, as a kid, I, I, I was a chess player, a competitive chess player. And so I was in Leningrad and all the Russians I knew, you know, come up to Malikyets. I mean, it was like that a boy. We had excelled in a sport that they appreciated. You might put it that way. And uh, now the leaders might have been having kittens, but the, the people liked it. And uh, certainly, if if the Russians of that day could have taken a part in that mission, they would have loved to. And there was a certain camaraderie between the astronauts and the cosmonauts, even though this was the height of the Cold War. And I think this sort of cooperative competition that we had during the space race did more to accelerate uh, progress in space than the direct cooperation we've had on the space station, uh, because it forced each uh, player to do their best in a way that direct collaboration does not. (laughs) <laughs> certainly plenty of people in Russia would want to be part of this. And, you know, by creating a private space company, Musk is showing the way for any country, including countries that are not considered spacefaring countries, like, you know, New Zealand now has reached orbit through Rocket Lab, even though New Zealand doesn't even have a government space program. You know, the private route uh, is a way that uh, anyone can participate uh, in space. That uh, certainly helps with uh, the factors of uh, the states being ineffective, right, uh, in their decision-making process. Do you think, by the way, that this uh, has been the major factor because of which we have not yet done it? The major factor being um, the... State inefficiency. Yeah, well, state inefficiency is a problem. I mean, look, the Apollo program was successful because... Even though it was a government program, it had a very clear purpose. Government programs can be effective when they have a very clear purpose and are purpose-driven, and they can do incredible things. And we've seen this in, in certain military programs as well, without question. But when they don't have a clear purpose, then it just becomes a program where the government's giving away money and it becomes about uh, it becomes a vendor-driven program instead of a purpose-driven program. And so it becomes extremely inefficient. Uh, instead of spending money to do things, they do things to spend money. We saw this with the American space program. We saw this with the Soviet space program. Musk is certainly purpose-driven. He's not doing things to spend money because he's spending his own money. He's spending money to do things. Return to the days of a purpose-driven program. And it doesn't have to be driven by um, harsh international competition. It, it can be driven by both the, the desire for discovery and, yes, the desire for eternal glory for doing great deeds, yeah, and uh, the, by being the first to make great discoveries. And that's healthy. Why do you think the U.S. Uh, space program uh, has not been purpose-driven? I've seen your passionate speech in the Senate, I think, a dozen years ago, and after that, the, some decisions were taken that... Uh, the Americans should go to the moon and then to Mars, but no results were reached. Well, it did not have the commitment. You know, Bush said, I want to return to the moon. He's saying this in 2004. He says, 
we'll do it in 2019, which is basically saying, I think we should return to the moon and I hope whoever follows me as president does it. Whereas John F. Kennedy said, I want to be to the moon before this decade was out. And he was looking at being president through 1968. So he was basically saying, I'm looking at at, that, at me doing this. We're going to do this. And he was up front. This is going to cost a lot of money and you got to be committed to this. He didn't try to sugarcoat it. Oh, it won't cost that much. No, he was all in. And we were mission driven and we did it. Goal for the human spaceflight program, it has become vendor driven. Now, the science program, to a large extent, has remained mission driven. That is, you know, they don't send rovers to Mars to give money to airbag companies. They send rovers to Mars to send rovers to Mars. And if they need airbags, they buy airbags. You know, that's how that is. And and the space telescopes and so forth. And yes, I mean, in any kind of government contracting, there's always some entropy and some waste. But still, the overall thrust has been mission driven. And so, for example, the Test Space Telescope, which was launched a year ago, uh, it's a planet finder. it was launched on a Falcon 9. And now they could have launched it on a Delta IV Heavy for four times the money. But since the science directorate wanted to save money, in other words, they weren't in business to give business to uh, Boeing for its overpriced Delta IV. They said, what's the cheapest rocket we have that will do the job? Well, it's a Falcon 9. Okay, we'll use that. Whereas, for instance, if you look at the Artemis program that NASA is currently doing, they say, we're going to the moon, but it must use SLS. And it must use Orion, even though Orion is so heavy that even the SLS can't deliver it to low lunar orbit with enough fuel for it to come home. So they have to now build a whole new space station in high lunar orbit, they call the gateway. Um, And that also, therefore, means that the lunar landing and ascent vehicle has to go much further. And it needs to be twice as big as it otherwise would have to be if they went to low lunar orbit. But if they used a Falcon Heavy and a Dragon, because the Dragon, Dragon weighs nine tons, Orion weighs 26. Falcon Heavy is strong enough to deliver a Dragon to low lunar orbit with enough propellant for it to come home. So you got a launch vehicle that costs one-tenth as much. you got a capsule that costs one-tenth as much, and it gets you to a better orbit. Why not do that? Well... Because there's a senator from Alabama says SLS is being made in my state and you're going to use SLS. OK, OK, because as far as I'm concerned, that's what this program is all about. Uh, is the program of Elon Musk based on the ideas that you put forward as a senior engineer at uh, Lockheed Martin? Well, in part, it is. Uh, not entirely. There is a number of important differences. The main similarity in terms of the architecture is Rather than flying to Mars orbit and bringing all your propellant with you and then sending a small uh, descent vehicle to the surface with enough propellant to get it back to Mars orbit and so forth and have a brief stay on Mars, uh, my architecture was direct flight to Mars, direct landing of the ship on Mars, um, long duration stay on Mars, make the propellant for return on Mars and to return directly from the Martian surface. So rather than keep the crew in orbit, except maybe for a couple of people for a short time, we send the whole crew to the surface. That's where the real mission is. That's where the science is. That's where the work is. And we come back using propellants made from Martian materials. And that's the key. Because it, you can't do direct return from the Martian surface if you're going to bring your propellant from Earth. That, that makes no sense. But the, the Mars has got carbon dioxide. It's got water. From that, you can make methane and oxygen, which is a rather good rocket propellant combination. And so that is the propellant combination that Starship uses. And um, the plan is to land them on Mars, make the propell- return propellant on Mars, and fly the thing back. 
So the architecture so, is the mm-hmm. same, but the design of the vehicles are, are, are rather different. Well, obviously, technology has gone forward since that time. Uh, but it, it is amazing that the ideas that uh, uh, have been put forward several decades ago are still influencing how we proceed with that ambitious task. The MASKS program intends to uh, use uh, Martian resources, uh, natural resources, to return to the Earth. Am I correct? Uh, yes, except I'd correct your language a little bit, okay? Because I mean, it may seem like just words, but I, I think there's an important concept here that people need to understand. I don't believe there's any such thing as a natural resource. There's only natural raw materials. It is human ingenuity, technology, that turns material into resources. Uranium was not a resource until we developed nuclear power. Oil was not a resource until we developed oil drilling, refining, and machines that could run on the product. You know, if, if you went to any country in the world in 1800 and you asked for what the country's natural resources were, they wouldn't have included uranium and they wouldn't have included oil. They wouldn't have even included aluminum uh, because aluminum was unknown. It was dirt. Aluminum did not become a resource until we had the technology to separate aluminum oxide into aluminum and oxygen. And then if you go back further in time, iron was not a resource in the Bronze Age. If you go back even further, land was not a resource till we developed agriculture. There are no resources on Mars right now. There will be once there are resourceful people there. Yeah, people, people create resources. I see, I see. It's an important distinction, yeah. Uh, so are there currently any technological challenges left that uh, do not enable us to perform this mission? In terms of the general level of technology, I would say no. Uh, that is, in terms of the general level of technology that we have, our knowledge of rocketry and electronics, computational Uh, technologies and certainly chemical engineering and nuclear power and metallurgy, the fundamental technology set needed to make the things we need to go to Mars, it's all here. uh, Now, the particular hardware items that are needed are are not yet here, but we have the skill set to make these things. Mm -hmm. What exactly do we have to make in these 10 years? Okay, we need to make a heavy lift launch vehicle, which uh, Musk is, is making. We need to make a system that can land heavy payloads on Mars. Now, the Starship also is that. But if you used a different kind of mission architecture, like my Mars Direct plan, where the heavy lift vehicle uh, lifts things to Earth orbit and you stage off of it, then you need uh, a heavy lander. You know, the lander that we're using on the Perseverance rover can only land one ton on Mars. We need to do a manned mission. We need to be able to land at least 10 tons at a time. Now, Starship will land 100 tons at a time. But 10 tons is, is the minimum required to be in the class for a Mars mission. I'd prefer 20. And uh, you could, of course, do a Mars mission using Starship um, my way and just flying it to low Earth orbit and staging off of it, just using it as a fully reusable heavy lift vehicle. Or you could do it the way Musk is, is talking, which is fly the whole Starship to Mars, which requires refueling the Starship on orbit. In my plan, you don't need to do that. So there's a trade there as to how you, how you want to go about this. But we need to be able to land heavy payloads on Mars. We need a space nuclear reactor. Uh, The Soviet Union had space nuclear reactors that could do 10 kilowatts. That's a little bit low. I prefer 50 to 100 kilowatts. But, you know, we had nuclear power before we had color television. Um, So it's not like this is 
some Star Trek technology. This is 1950s technology. We just need to engineer the right system out of it. So everything is achievable in that time period. Uh, yeah. Uh, if you say that we should be on Mars by 2030, uh, it means that uh, the mission should leave uh, an, a year and a half before that? It takes six months to get to Mars. Um, the spacecraft that are being launched to Mars uh, this month are going to arrive next February. As far as I uh, remember, uh, there was a plan to first send uh, unmanned uh, vehicle to Mars to prepare there, prepare to convert uh, Martian uh, uh, resources uh, into the fuel and to establish the module where astronauts would be living. So yeah, in, in the Mars... Not... In the Mars Rec plan, yes, you would first send the um, Earth return vehicle to Mars. It would make its return propellant. And then at the next launch window, you would send the people. So in that sense, yes, you would launch. If you were using my plan, you would want to launch the Earth return vehicle in 2028 in order to send people in 2030. In Musk's plan, he sends the same vehicle to Mars that's going to refuel and return it would launch it in the very same launch window. The people fly there. Or you could send one of his vehicles first, have it make its propellant, and then fly the people out on the neck with the next starship and come back with the first one. And so you're always refueling one on Mars. Uh, and you always have a fully fueled return vehicle waiting for you when you leave Earth. It's never a question of, uh, I could be stranded if the propellant making doesn't work. Yeah, because that's the question of risks. If you just go in uh, uh, without uh, any preparation on Mars, risking lives of the people, that's that's not something that uh, the population would approve of, probably. No, but it's a question of, I mean, how much risk you're willing to take. So when I designed Mars Direct, I sent the Earth return vehicle out first. And certainly because I was trying to sell the plan to NASA, which certainly wouldn't have considered it, in uh, any other way. Uh, Musk is a bit more daring, but frankly, I, I think it would be advisable to send a starship out first with no one in it, have it fuel up, and then send the second starship. And so the crew has a fully fueled starship ready and waiting for it while, when it reaches Mars, and it has two starships to live in. How many people will there be on the first mission? In, in my plan, I was trying to minimize the size of the vehicles in order to minimize the launch requirements. And um, so I sent a crew of four. I figured that was the bare minimum. Now, the Starship, as it's currently designed, could take 100 people. I still wouldn't send 100 people. I might send 10. Um, okay, that's plenty. There's no need for 100 people on the first Mars mission. But Musk is designing the Starships to support not just Mars exploration, but Mars settlement. I have approached Musk with the idea of building a, what I call a mini starship, which is very much like the starship that you see, except its size to be the upper stage of a Falcon 9. So it, it would be able to use the existing lower stage of the Falcon 9, and it would be about a fifth the size of the big starship. And it could easily take a crew of 10 to Mars, and it'd be much easier to refuel to send home. You wouldn't even need to refuel it on orbit. You could lift that to Earth orbit with a big starship and just shoot that off to Mars. You know, but Musk's attitude is, prove to me I need it. Uh, which, by the way, is a refreshing attitude. NASA's uh, attitude is, uh, how many different things can I uh, use this mission as an excuse to fund? Because I have a whole bunch of things I'd like to have an excuse to 
buy. Whereas Musk is, I want to buy as little as I can. But I think that the mini Starship, um, even though it's an additional development, uh, would be extremely useful uh, to support the Mars mission. And it, and it would be a very good commercial system by itself, a medium lift reusable system. So, Robert, I fully agree with you that uh, going to Mars and later on uh, colonizing it is one of the most important uh, tasks that we as humanity have and that it is our duty. But still, many people would object, uh, would say that first we have to fight problems here on Earth, uh, global poverty, uh, other issues here. What is your main counter-argument for those Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, I I fully agree that we should be addressing all our technological problems, including, you know, everything, include methods of medicine and agriculture and uh, every industrial production, uh, more efficient industrial production makes things cheaper and therefore lifts people out of poverty. That, in fact, is why people today live much better than they did 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, the industrial revolutionaries. But we have enough uh, that we can do Mars as well. Now, what are the unique problems, though, that Mars exploration and settlement will solve? One is what we're going to learn from science. And the science is going to be extremely interesting, not just in the abstract, but in practical way, because we're going to learn what life is. Life could have evolved separately on Mars. All life on Earth is the same at the biochemical level. Amino acids, the same RNA and DNA uh, method of encoding information from one generation to the next. So RNA and DNA is the alphabet of life on Earth. I'm an American, speak English, We use the Latin alphabet. So do the French, the Germans, the Spanish. Russians use the Cyrillic alphabet, and it is different. So if all someone knew was Western Europe, you would think that what alphabets are is the Latin alphabet. Now, if you were acquainted with Russian or Greek, you would know about the Cyrillic alphabet and say, oh, here's a different alphabet. The Cyrillic alphabet still works on the same set of principles that the Latin alphabet does. It just uses different letters and somewhat different sounds to sound out words. The Chinese alphabet, on the other hand, is completely different. It's a completely different system. It works according to totally different principles. It it is not based on spelling out sounds. It's based ultimately on pictures. So it it uses a totally different logic. It has a separate origin. Different information systems have enormous value. Of course, the, the, the great revolutionary technology of the past say, 30 years has been digital technology, digital electronics, and all the the new stuff has has come out of the mastery of that uh, technological sphere. Okay, that's been great. Well, what is life? Life is self-reproducing digital technology. That's what it is. Okay, microbes are the real nanotechnology. And if we could program them and insert information systems in them that is programmable, This has enormous power and and not just doing the kinds of things that computers can do now, although it will be able to do that, but all sorts of incredible things, because unlike electric computers, these things can replicate themselves and they can also alter the environment that they're in. So they're not just information, they're action. So this is a new science that we're going to perhaps open up by going to Mars. Another thing, of course, is we're going to create a new branch of human civilization, one which is going to face many technical challenges and therefore I think be extremely inventive and make major contributions to technology overall. But there's another thing, though, that 
going to Mars will do that will be of decisive value for the human race. I think it will avert the primary danger to humanity right now. What is the primary danger to humanity right now? People talk about climate change, resource exhaustion, stuff like that. Well, did any of those things cause the great disasters of the 20th century? You know, the wars, the genocides, the catastrophes that were all caused by people that were not caused by climate change or resource exhaustion. They were caused by bad ideas. And in particular, one bad idea in a number of different forms. And what that bad idea was, was there isn't enough for everyone. There isn't enough to go around. And therefore, we are going to have to kill them, okay? Because, and perhaps sooner rather than later. I mean, look, you know, in 1912, General Friedrich von Bernhardi, one of the chief intellectuals of the German general staff, wrote a book called Germany and the Next War. He said, look, you know, Who's going to run Eurasia? It's either going to be Germany or Russia. So we're going to have to uh, 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 settle this thing with them. And should this be sooner or later? Well, clearly sooner because we got to wipe them out before they industrialize. Two years later, they took advantage of the assassination of the Archduke to initiate World War I, which, of course, is the seminal catastrophe of the 20th century that sets a whole bunch of others in motion. And then 1939, Hitler, even more hysterically, okay, the laws of existence require uninterrupted killing so that the better may live. Okay, now, I mean, Germany never needed living space. Germany today has a lot less space than it had in the Third Reich and a bigger population, but a much higher living standard. Why? Okay, not by stealing other people's cows, okay, after killing them, um, but through the advance of science and technology. And where that science and technology come from? Well, some of it was created by Germans, but, but the large bulk of it was created by all sorts of other people, including notably people they were trying to exterminate. The, the, and the same thing with Japan and China. You know, in the 1930s, Japan invades China. Why? Did they need additional space? No, but they figured sooner or later, it's either going to be Japan or China that runs Asia. And now's the time to attack because they're weak now. They won't always be weak. Okay, so it's always going to be to one side or the others to, to, to fight now rather than wait. Today, this emerging confrontation of the West and China, and I happen to know for a fact that there are people in the American national security establishment who believe that war with China is inevitable, that the world's not big enough for the two of us, that if, you know, the Chinese, if they all start, you know, uh, being developed and they all have cars, there won't be enough oil in the world, okay? And, and you can bet that there are similar people in Beijing who look at this problem from the other side of the chessboard and think exactly the same thing from the black pieces. And if this kind of thinking prevails, it's going to be war. And it's going to be much more catastrophic than the wars of the 20th century because the weaponry is far more effective. And it's nonsense. Germany never needed living space. And there doesn't have to be this war. You know, look, why is China developing right now? Why have they had a massive advance in living standards in the past 30 years? Well, it's because of technology that was invented in the West, largely. Okay, But how did the West develop its technology? Well, it had its renaissance because of technologies like paper and printing that were invented in China. Inventions made anywhere sooner or later benefit everyone everywhere. So the true condition of humanity is not of opposing nations in a struggle for existence over finite resources. It's rather that we are 
uh, a family, a disorderly family to be sure, but nevertheless, a family of people who are making various types of creative contributions whose net sum is to expand the prospects for all of us. Going to Mars, it's not, we're not going to get oil from Mars, but what we're going to get is an understanding that it's not true that there's only so much to go around because the Earth comes with a wide open sky. Don't you think that history will repeat itself on Mars and that we will have also divided society and wars there? Oh, you might have some uh, struggles on Mars, uh, certainly have competition on Mars. Uh, Mars is a, you know, a planet that has a surface area equal to all the continents of the Earth put together. So for sure, there's going to be many different uh, uh, settlements on Mars, and they'll probably have many different social systems, and uh, according to the ideas of the people that go. And the ones that work the best uh, will grow, they'll succeed, they'll attack, uh, attract immigrants, they'll become examples to everyone else on Mars and on Earth. Uh, those that have bad ideas will fail, disappear, and they'll be forgotten. This is how life progresses. This is how humanity progresses. We're going to have a lot of noble experiments. But the, the real issue is not whether there's competition. There's always going to be competition. The real issue is the spirit of the competition. The real issue is we understand that we're competing to take advantage of opportunities, not competing to fight over uh, scarce resources. You know, if, if you and I were locked in a room and we were told, you know, the only water that there's ever going to be in this room is this water right here in this bottle, okay, and there's no way out. Well, sooner or later, we're going to look at each other and say, huh, I'm going to make sure he doesn't get that water, okay? And the best way to do it is to kill him, whether in his sleep or while he's awake, whatever I can do. Uh, on the other hand, if we understand that there's a whole world out there and that working together, we can knock the door open and enjoy, you know, the fruits of an entire world of people and nature, it's a different story. Then we're not enemies. Then we're friends. So that's the, th the main counter-argument, uh, that we will have a, a new society, a new understanding of uh, cooperation Correct. between humans. Right? That's right. We mm -hmm. will understand that all men can be brothers, because we'll understand that by working together, we can open up infinite opportunities. Why fight over provinces when there's whole planets waiting for us? Well, that's uh, very inspiring. How do you think the Martian society would look like? So you, you mentioned that there would be competitive settlements. Yeah. How exactly would they work? First of all, I think there's always going to be people on Earth that have new ideas on how people should live together, what the customs should be, religions, uh, ethics. And in general, people with new ideas like that are not particularly popular uh, among everybody else. And so... They need to have a place where they can go, where they can give their ideas a try. If you look at some of the most remarkable colonization efforts that have occurred in the past 400 years, remarkable in that they're counterintuitive, uh, that is, they were not done for commercial reasons, for example. Um, you have, uh, well, for instance, the pilgrims going to Massachusetts, uh, the Mormons going to Utah, um, the Jews going to Palestine. Utah, I don't know if you've ever been in Utah, but... Not yet. Okay, well, there were a lot more attractive places that the Mormons could have gone. California was wide open, and uh, so was Oregon and so forth, a much more lush place. But they went there so they'd have their own place. The pilgrims, they didn't leave the Netherlands 
uh, because they were being oppressed. In fact, the problem was the exact opposite. The Dutch were too nice. They were assimilating them. He said, no, no, we have to have our own place so we can create our own world, our city on a hill. And the Jews going to Palestine after World War II, a lot better off going to New York, they wanted to have their own place. So they did it. And these kinds of people, uh, in, in all three cases, you see people with a bit of steel in their backbone there, uh, people willing to take on uh, tough situations and uh, in, in order to realize their visions. Okay, now all three of those had uh, religious motivations, at least in part. I think there's going to be all sorts of people and with all sorts of ideas. And, you know, there are some people, you know, the Mars Society has a contest right now for designing a Martian city-state. We've got 175 entries, and they include ideas on how it should be governed. It should be, we have radical libertarian uh, societies, and we've got social democratic societies and everything. And well, what's going to work? Well, we'll see on Mars, actually. Now, you said that Mars uh, can be terraformed uh, by the 23rd century, I think. Uh, is this forecast uh, still what you believe? Well, let, let me be clear on that. Uh, if we look at the kind of technologies we currently understand, not that we have, but that we understand, that we could figure out in principle how to do, it looks more like a thousand-year problem. In other words, there's part of it that we could do within 50 years, which is you set up factories on Mars to produce uh, extremely potent greenhouse gases like fluoromethane, and you release it into the atmosphere. It could warm the planet up 10 centigrade, and that would release a lot of carbon dioxide from the soil, and that warm the planet even more. Then the water starts to flow. But the real hard part is oxygenating the planet. And because that requires much more energy than just releasing carbon dioxide from the soil. Now you have to turn carbon dioxide into oxygen and plant material, and, and there's a lot of energy involved. And if we just use the kind of plants we have today, which are only about 1% efficient viewed as photosynthetic engines, it'd take a thousand years, even with people actively helping it, spreading the seeds, doing stuff, irrigation, take a thousand years. But If we're talking, you know, 100 years, 200 years into the future, uh, people are going to have technologies that we don't understand today. I mean, and or even things that we kind of understand but don't quite have. For instance, maybe we can genetically engineer plants that instead of being 1% efficient or 5% efficient, in which case they could terraform the planet much faster. Or uh, other much more speculative technologies, nanotechnology. In my book, The Case for Mars, uh, which, by the way, is out in both Russian and English, I discuss doing the, the plan in a certain way with fluorocarbon gases and then green plants and, and so on. I think, though, that people 200 years from now living on a terraformed Mars will, if they read my book, will say, well, they'll look at it the same way we look at Jules Verne's moon mission plan. Okay, You know, in mm -hmm. 1865, yeah. Jules Verne wrote a book, From the Earth to the Moon, and he had a plan. And a lot of things he got right. They launched from Florida. They had a crew of three mm. in a capsule. They orbited the moon, and they landed in the Pacific Ocean and were picked up by a United States Navy warship, all as actually happened in the Apollo wow. program. Okay, <laughs> but... but What was the propulsion system? 
heavy artillery, okay, a giant <laughs> cannon. And so you look at that and you say, wow, you got all this stuff right, but going to the moon by being fired out by a heavy artillery, how 19th century can you get? Well, similarly, I think people that read my plan in the future will say, well, he got a lot of stuff right, but doing this with fluorocarbon gases produced in chemical factories and green plants, how 20th century can you get? Of course, he couldn't understand that we would do this with self-reproducing nanorobots. I have the same problem with terraforming that Jules Verne had with the Mars, uh, with the moon mission, which is he was a 19th century mind grappling with a 20th century problem. I'm a 20th century mind grappling with a 22nd century problem. This is going to be done by people who have better tools than I can know about. Yeah, I see. Uh, do you think they will probably nuke uh, the planet's surface? That's what no, th Elon that Musk mentioned. Yeah, no, he's wrong about that. That plan won't work. Um, the, the amount of energy needed to uh, release the carbon dioxide that is frozen or absorbed into the Martian soil is much greater than is uh, possible from nuclear uh, weaponry. Greenhousing the planet with greenhouse gases is actually much more effective. The amount of solar energy hitting Mars is gigantic. And uh, if you could capture uh, a, a somewhat greater percentage of it, that's a far more effective uh, way of, of doing it. And, and furthermore, I mean, if you did nuclear bombardment, when you run out of bombs, the stuff would all just precipitate again. This way, you're altering the atmosphere in a way that permanently warms the planet. And of course, We're demonstrating our ability right now to warm a planet, except in this case, it'll be the right thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If everything turns out uh, in a good way, and uh, if we happen to start Mars colonization within our lifetimes, would you be willing to go yourself? Yeah, I would. Um, you know, you only live once and... Most of us would like to do something that really matters. Uh, I don't think I'm going to have a chance uh, to uh, go to Mars, you know. Um, you don't? No, I, I don't. I mean, look, I was 17, and, and <laughs> the moon landing on a really crappy Soviet television. And, but I was 17, and if somebody had told me then that I'd be 68 and we wouldn't be on the moon and Mars, in fact, have cities on the moon and Mars, I would have thought they were crazy. But... We blew it, okay? We had a major failure of political leadership in, in, in this country at the time of the Apollo program. The Nixon administration basically turned the program off. It's like Columbus coming back from the New World the first time and Ferdinand and Isabella saying, so what? We don't care about this. Go away. That's what happened. So we've lost half a century. But if I can have had a role in helping to make this happen, that's good enough for me. Thank you so much for what you're doing, Robert. And thank you so much for this uh, conversation. As usual, we have a contest at the end of our podcast. The author of the best comment uh, under this video on YouTube will receive the free ebook by Robert, A Case for Mars. So please write a comment whether you liked uh, this discussion or not. Maybe you have some fresh ideas. Maybe you agree with everything. Maybe you disagree with something. And support uh, my podcast with your like and your subscription. And also support me on Patreon. I'm Greg Mastrider. See you next week. Ooh.